Hello and welcome to another episode of Beyond Busy, the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance and defining happiness and success. My name is Graham Alcott. I'm your host for the show. And on this episode, I'm talking to Kat Keeley. It's a special episode. It's in our usual off week, but it's all about how to get PPE, protective equipment to the frontline NHS and other workers. So we just thought we'd put it out as soon as we could and stay tuned for how you can help. Before we get into that directly, um, a couple of things from me. So firstly, I've just started this new mailing list. So if you go to graymalcott.com, then fairly high up on the homepage there and actually at the bottom of all the pages is a little form that you can fill in to be part of my mailing list. It's the first time ever I've had my own mailing list. I think Productive's had one for years, um, giving out productivity tips and useful stuff uh, from the business. But this is the first time that I've done my own. And the idea is that every Sunday night, I'll be sending out some kind of upbeat, interesting thought for the week ahead. That's the the general kind of theme of it. Really designed to get conversation going, get a bit of debate going, and also for me to connect in with with you and what you're doing. Um, I'm going to probably try and put questions in most weeks so that uh, it just encourages people to reply and get some dialogue going. That's the general idea. So if you want to be part of that, if you want to be on the inside track and know what I'm doing, then just go to graymalcott.com and sign up for the mailing list. Love to have you there. Also, Think Productive is still doing our work from home webinars. So thinkproductive.com forward slash WFH. The first one's all just booked out and they were all full. Uh, had some really great feedback on it. And actually, it's led to a few new clients for Think Productive as well. So um, just goes to show, as you'll hear in this episode with cats, you know, when you put good stuff out there and just focus on how you can help then the money usually follows so that's been good because it's kind of kept us afloat really over the last few weeks obviously a lot of our regular clients have been cancelling the face-to-face sessions that we were doing and we've moved some of them to zoom but not all of them so that's been a real lifeline for us but we've we've now got to the point where there's still demand for the the web webinars around working from home but they're not filling up so uh chances are if you've tried to get on one before and you couldn't get on one you'll be able to get on one now. So thinkproductive.com forward slash WFH if you want to find out more about that. Um, So let's get straight into this episode. Um, We're recording this on a Saturday morning, uh, middle of the COVID situation, obviously. And um, yeah, just shows that Katz is someone who is um, certainly busy, but also full of purpose and doing great stuff and just has so many great insights to share as well as some really important information about how you can help with this whole PPE thing. So let's get straight into the episode. Here's my conversation with Kat Keeley. We are rolling. We've turned off all of the devices and other distraction points. Yes, we have. You're fully present and in the room. Yes, I am. How are you doing? I am very good. I am very good. Despite the craziness of today, I am very good. So I'm with Kat Keeley and we're going to talk about... PPE and getting the right protective equipment to the front line amongst many other things. Um, but let's start with you. So uh, where are you on this Saturday morning as we record, Katz? I am in Sheffield. Um, I guess it was nearly eight weeks ago now. I was stood on a tube in London, which is where I spend most of my time. And the guy next to me started coughing. And previous to that, I'd been in a WhatsApp group And we'd been looking at the data and watching how the same pattern was replicating globally. And I looked at the man coughing and thought, 
I'm insane. Why am I waiting for the government to tell us to lock down when I know the only way that we can actually stop this thing? And so I decamped to my house in Sheffield. As I was throwing my things into my bag, I was thinking, am I overreacting here? Eight weeks later, I would say not. (laughs) (laughs) So often people, you know, talk when it comes to data about being ahead of the curve. And I think most people are looking back now on that that little period where it felt like a lockdown was going to come. And there's a lot of criticism of the UK government in terms of how slow they were to react and so on. But it felt at the time like, yes, this might come. But, you know, me personally, I think my... Because I went to a gig on the Sunday night before the lockdown. And we sort of knew it was naughty, right? But no one had told us not to. And we thought maybe it'll be different. But it felt like at that time, like a lot of people were in denial and you weren't in denial. You you were aware that this was a a thing that you probably needed to do so what I'm just curious about how 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 did you come to those conclusions uh when so many of us didn't I suppose I've spent the last um 16 years at least um working on figuring out how you can use digital uh channels and also open data to help people to understand better versions of the truth and actually be able to come together to collaborate to try and find solutions to the um, problems that bubble up. Yeah. And so I find myself in the extremely lucky situation where I'm in a global network of the most extraordinary thought leaders, digital pioneers, communicators, data geeks like me. Um, And so I also managed to find myself in some extraordinary WhatsApp groups, um, which are pretty organic, but they have some of the smartest people in the world, from my perspective, in them. And so one of those groups was looking specifically at the coronavirus um, challenge um, and kind of finding all of the information and the data that we could find and starting to map and collate and aggregate and analyze that data. And so it became, and I was, you know, I was like you at the beginning of the year. I was like, it's just flu. Mm. Why is everyone freaking out? And, and also, like, we've seen SARS before. We've seen other things like that before, right? So it just didn't feel any different to that. Apart from they didn't come to to, to the UK, did they? They didn't really Yeah, well, that's what I mean. So we, we, yeah. we looked at those things as being some kind of far away problem that doesn't affect us. Exactly, because in some way... We are infallible and the Western world, you know, we can control these things, right? Clearly not. And, you know, on some levels, it's really interesting for me because it feels like even though it's absolutely awful on every level, I mean, personally, socially, I know that it's affecting people's mental health, being trapped inside. But on some levels, it feels like it's uh, a much needed reset, um, from the perspective of the planet and people, it's people seem to have refocused on the stuff that really matters. Well, let's let's come back to the reset part of it later. The other question I was going to ask you about this: so you've, you're in this WhatsApp group, and you've got all these data geeks, and they're working out patterns, and they're looking at what's likely in the UK, and you can see that, and you go up to Sheffield. The thing that strikes me is that the government employ lots of very clever data people right and so why is there a lag between what the people that you're in a whatsapp group with 
why is there a lag between what they're seeing and what the government's doing? Like, why why is that? You know, and you can look at government as being a, a huge uh, bureaucratic system, but you know, why is there such a lag there in terms of the data and then acting on the data? So, I mean, we could use this as an opportunity to to politics bash and NHS bash, but I, I think that's not relevant and not helpful. I think that the truth of the scenario is for years, all I've ever done with my career is help large corporations understand how they need to transform to be more relevant to the 21st century. So large corporations are, you know, bureaucratic, hierarchical, they're kind of operate across silos. The right hand doesn't know what the left hand's doing. And the private sector have a really good reason to be able to actually fix their operating model so that they can become more efficient, more resilient, more agile, and all of those things. Um, And even then, most companies are miles, miles behind where they should be now. So then you look at the public sector. And the public sector, and I've worked at the UN, it has a different set of challenges in some ways Um, And the procurement methodologies, the political system that we have was designed for a time which was kind of slower, where things were more controllable. Um, And obviously the world has accelerated and I'm not really sure how much people have noticed how fast the world is changing around them. And then suddenly something hits like this. And those procurement models, those frameworks, those political systems... They are not built for a time of accelerating change. And it's, I mean, we can't blame any one person. I don't believe for one second that everybody in the NHS isn't desperately trying to do their best. Um, I won't talk about the political system, but, um, but the truth is that the systems are not set up for the 21st century and they don't have the ability to be able to rise up to a crisis quickly because they're not made, they're not built for rapid change. And so obviously the people I know, <clears throat> we're entrepreneurs. Our entire way of seeing the world is you see a problem, you understand the problem, you come up with a solution to that problem. If it doesn't work, you look at the data, and you make it better. And that's our operating model. It's not easy to take that way of working into a large organization. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think, you know, people have been talking, including the NHS, you know, and what a great thing that we have them. Um, they've been talking about the need to transform for years and years. There's been this conversation about digital transformation. We need to become more efficient, yada, yada. The truth is it's only now. And again, going back to that trigger piece, it's only now where they really understand what transformation means. And it doesn't mean bringing in yet another technology platform um, to make things more efficient, kind of make people feel more nervous. It means they have to transform the way they operate. They have to transform their culture so that people feel that they can make mistakes, that they can make those little fixes when they see them. And now they realise that because they realise what happens when you can't and a crisis hits. So, I mean, you've done digital transformation work for people like HP and Intel and this current project that you're working on, which we're going to talk about, uh, Frontline.Live, which is all about creating this open source platform so that people can uh, be connected with the right kind of PPE. A lot of that is you coming in as... Uh, 
you know, some kind of outsider figure and shaking things up inside bigger organizations. And I just wonder what you, how do you see your relationship when you go into an organization like Intel or HP or, or others? And, and, you know, you're, you're kind of, you're, you're coming in as the bearer of exciting news and often the bearer of bad news because it's changed and people don't like that. And, just, you know, do you see yourself as some kind of outlaw figure? No, my God, no. I, <laughs> outlaw sounds bad. You know, I, I definitely see myself as an enabler of change. Mm. And, and to give you a bit of background about who I am, to let you know why. So <clears throat> in 2004, we built the very first ever open innovation competition platform. I think that we were the first, and every time I do a keynote, I always say at this point in my talk, I guess this is the point where I have to say to everybody in the audience, did anyone else build an open innovation competition platform before 2004? <laughs> and if that's the case, put your hand up. No, they never have, so I'm going to keep rocking that. <clears throat> the point of that was I could see there was a massive problem. The problem was this. Big companies didn't really understand how fast the world was changing. They needed innovation. And at the other side, I had this huge ecosystem of startups, digital agencies, technical creatives, people, my, my tribe, people who use digital to make difference quickly. And I could th see that they needed to have a relationship. So we built this platform so that we could help the large corporations who need innovation connect to the startups who need money. Um, so it was, it was really ahead of its time, the platform, um, but we could very, we what we found was we could bring the very, very best innovators into large corporations and within six months, a year, whatever, they would get chewed up and spat out by the corporate antibodies. Um, so then we were like, mm, okay, we probably need to reset the way we're working a bit. So then we started going into large organizations and using digital experimenting with um, digital to help them figure out how they become more agile, more resilient, how they could break down the boundaries between the silos, all of that stuff that actually, you know, doesn't seem that advanced now. But, you know, in 2008, 2009, it was definitely advanced. Lots of, sort of digital communication stuff, innovation stuff, all of that. Um, so we became very good at figuring out what did and didn't work within large organizations. We got very good at understanding some of the complexity uh, we, we started to understand, actually, that, grow, that understanding has grown somewhat over the years. Then I got headhunted by the UN. Now, <clears throat> I had never worked inside a large organization. I had only worked with as a service provider. So suddenly having a full-time job inside the UN, which is the most hierarchical, bureaucratic organization in the world, did I let myself, did I know what I was letting myself in for? Nope. <laughs> Suddenly, I've got a job which is leading tr a transformation program um, in Geneva, given everything else up. I'm reporting into the guy who's reporting into the SecGen. Three weeks later, I'm going, oh, my God, what have I done? This is insane. Um, but, you know, picking myself back off the ground and going, okay, you've spent the last years doing experiments using digital and approaches um, and you know which bits work. So if you tack all of those bits together into a st strategy, it can't get any worse than it is now. Let's just see what happens. So uh, massively successful program. Nice. And the reason it was successful was this. I didn't go in there as the big I am consultant expert. I went in there as somebody who was honest and open and empathetic 
And I said to found the people who I call change agents, who are the people inside the organization that can either be the organization's very best friends, by which I mean um, they will absolutely advocate for you and do whatever they can to try and make your company better. Or they can be the worst people in the world because they're still that powerful. So I found them. I did lots of design thinking workshops where together we came up with a solution. So I wasn't doing change to them. We were doing change together. And all the way through the program, I was saying, look, I'm not here to take your jobs. I have no intention of staying here even. I'm here to help you make the culture better. I'm here to help you figure out how we can make the organization do what it does better. Um, and that's the change. It's like if, if I went into an organization with my team, with tech, whatever I'm doing, and, and um, let me tell you this, this beautiful behavioral insight. Um, human beings have two key states of mind. We have the reward state. Now, the reward state, we evolved so that we could keep social um, communities together. The reason that humans are the homo sapiens that survived is because we're super good at keeping social groups together. Um, so in the, um, in the reward state, we're innovative and communicative and collaborative and all of those things that you want people to be. And then we've got the threat state. Now, the threat state is built by your unconscious mind. And it's there so that if we get charged by a saber-toothed tiger back in those days, um, we could get away really quickly so we could survive. Um, so actually, when, when we're in survival mode, um, we, we don't, definitely don't need to be conversational or communicative or innovative or any of those things. We just want to run away and hide. So if you look at that from an organizational perspective, every time that an employee has change done to them where they don't know where the change come from, where it's totally unexpected, where they don't really know how it's going to affect them, the physiological reaction in their bodies, and they don't even know that you know this isn't a rational thing, this is a body reaction, makes them feel nervous. It stops them feeling safe. It takes away the uh, psychological safety. So change is fine, so long as you do it with people, not to them. Yeah. Y yeah, it's common sense, right? To me, it also feels like, you know, that's a really good, uh, you know, reminder and lesson for what's going on right now. And on a personal level, you have, you know, you have the the, the lizard brain, the amygdala kind of fight or flight response versus your more rational, um, exactly. you know, uh, sort of frontal cortex response where, where you can be logical and communicative and innovative and, and all of that stuff. Yes. Um and it you know it, and it and it feels like that's a really important thing for right now and maybe quite a nice segue actually into let's talk about frontline then because that feels to me like you're applying communication and innovation in the middle of when everyone else feels like they're in a threat state so that's probably quite a good good link so uh, let's uh, let's just come back to that with frontline then so it's all about getting PPE onto the front line, but do you want to just tell the story of what you're doing and how yeah. it's come about? Yeah. So, um, so a few years ago, I started uh, thinking I need to pull together all of my experience and turn that into a platform so that I can then help large corporations go through what I call, you know, real transformation, organizational, cultural transformation. Um, so, 
Uh, we're building a software that helps large organizations um, harness the experience, the knowledge, the creativity of their employees by giving frontline workers a voice. Um, so obviously at the beginning of all of this, um, uh, business is not easy. And so I find myself <clears throat> in my house in Sheffield thinking, watching two things happening. One of them is there are about 25,000 people in March who are frontline workers complaining about the fact they don't have the equipment they need to keep them safe. That is appalling. And, you know, I'm talking to people who are nurses who are going into hospitals and don't have masks. That feeling of fear, I can't imagine how bad that is. On the other side, there's loads of entrepreneurs and innovators and small companies and community groups and people pivoting to make the PPE that could help these people feel more safe. So I thought, well, if there's one thing I can do, it's design a platform that gives those frontline workers a voice. Um, and at the same time, if we can map where those suppliers are and we can map where people are in need, that seems like a really sensible way forward. So that was four weeks ago now, four and a half weeks ago. I came up with this crazy idea. Um, the Center for Advanced Spatial Communications um, said they would help with the technology then another amazing technologist jumped forward, a guy called Ben Smith, who said he would actually build it. Then we've got um, a, a PR agency and then a media agency. And then more and more and more people sat forward to say, we want to help. We don't know what to do. We want to help you make this a, a thing. So um, two weeks later, we launch. Um, and that's ridiculously fast. It's ridiculous. It's, it's mad, actually. It's <laughs> you can imagine the NHS being able to do that. I think not. Um, and so, so we launched the platform. Essentially, um, the way it works is that anyone who is on the front line, a frontline healthcare worker, um, can tweet in a picture of themselves with three hashtags, hashtag frontline map, hashtag their work postcode, so that we can make sure they actually work at a care home or a, a hospice or a hospital, um, and hashtag whatever it is that they're lacking. So we put it out there, not quite knowing how that would work, not really understanding the culture of the NHS either, actually. And we also then, from some of the information, some of the insights we were getting through our insight uh, partner, Innovation Bubble, um, that some people within the NHS don't feel safe to be able to publicly talk about what's going on. So we gave people the option of reporting their needs anonymously, not thinking that many people would use it. Interestingly, uh, about 70% of people choose to report their needs anonymously. Mm. Um, and some of the things that they're telling us anonymously uh, are not great. So I would say that there is a real need for cultural transformation within the healthcare sector. Uh, and I didn't know that before, but again, you know, you collect data, you see the truth. Um, at the same time, so so they can so so every time somebody tweets, our volunteers then check that they're at a hospital or a hospice or a care home, and they actually literally put their need on the map. So we have built two maps, one which shows the real time needs from the front line, um, and the other one shows the suppliers that are registering at Frontline Live. So you can literally toggle between. This is where the need is. Oh, look, 30 miles away, there's somebody who can answer their need. 
So our job is absolutely not to judge anyone. As I say, I don't judge anyone. I think change is difficult, but it is to inform. It is to say, this is the real-time data. This is a version of the truth that policymakers, procurement people should be aware of because it will make help you make better decisions. And in terms of then getting that PPE to that place, so you've got the map of who needs what, you've got the map of who's producing what. It sort of reminds me of, there was, I remember there was a Jasper Carrot. Do you remember Jasper Carrot? There's a yeah. Jasper Carrot TV uh, sort of sketch or bit of stand-up from years and years ago where he talked about Woolworths and how the customer service people in Woolworths were, uh, you know, always a bit unhelpful. And he said, I went up to the counter, I said, uh, excuse me, I've just put Semtex in the pick and mix. And the person stands there and goes, oh, that's not my department. You've got to go over there. So I just, you know, like if 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 you're telling people, here's the stuff that people need, like is there then this danger that it, that then gets lost in this, oh, no, you'll have to go and speak to procurement and they're over there and then you've got to go and, you know, is there is there um, the danger that stuff gets lost in the middle of that and, and like what can what can what can you do or what can other people do to to try and avoid that from happening well it's it's been kind of beautiful so the people who have tweeted and therefore we have their name and their postcode um organizations literally and this is not through our our architecture by the way this is just by putting the data up Um, organizations have started literally delivering um those protective glasses to that person at that postcode oh wow I know. And we didn't, I mean, suddenly we're seeing tweets arrive where they, where people are saying, we've just delivered these to you. And it's like, wow, that's beautiful. Wow. So it's bypassing the centralized blockers. Yeah. And presumably a lot of that then is donations because there's no mechanism for that to then be paid for. Exactly that. And so again, you know, I mean, what, what I think is beautiful about this whole situation is people who are usually absolutely commercial in the way they think about the world are suddenly uh and it's it's like you know i say it's like the dunkirk of you know the dunkirk ships situation um but on steroids it's like these entrepreneurs who are like i say usually absolutely commercial are rising up and collaborating in ways i've never seen before to make the impossible happen and that's you know extraordinary you get people like you know norman foster uh, his architects take the time out to design a new protective visor, um, which they start 3D printing out and donating to hospitals around them and making that an open source design so that anyone anywhere can print those out. It's, you know, you've got the brew dogs and the barbers and the Burberries and, and every day there's a new company that understands that doing good is good business mm. because if people love your brand they're more likely to be loyal to you. Who knew? feels like such an obvious thing, but um, it's also just really lovely to see that reaction happening, isn't it? It's, well, it's, it's something that I've built my entire career on. Doing good is good business. But again, um, back to the first comment I made, I think that this terrible, terrible human tragedy has refocused people on what matters. Yeah. And what matters is... You know, looking, making sure that people feel safe. That's kind of fundamental. Profit can't 
always be our key focus. Yeah. So before we get onto the the deep stuff, let's just finish with uh, frontline. Then, so what do you what do you need from people? What what can people do to help? Oh, well, uh, and this is kind of perfect timing because something else happened. Something else emerged over this crazy story of weeks. Um, one of the women who volunteered to project manage Gina is in New York. She works with a guy called Rob Noble. Rob Noble, Noble is also a serial entrepreneur and a very successful one. He found himself in a situation where he was thinking, what can I do to help this situation? He's a Brit living in the US. Um, his best friend from school runs a factory in Norfolk who make all of the kind of the flags and the sticker badges for cars and stuff that you see in kind of big sports events. So this guy sold like a million flag, car flags at the Euros. He's that kind of person. Obviously, people aren't doing football at the moment. Neither are they doing large events. So he hasn't got a big need to put. So Rob gets in touch with his friend Andy and says, what can we do to sort out this problem? So they come up with this ingenious idea where they are printing um, loads of these caregiven um, car flags, car stickers, window stickers, selling them through their site, caregiven.co.uk, um, all of the money that's uh, spent on this merchandise is converted into PPE. So that means that, and the only thing they didn't have when they came up with this whole idea and started making it happen and putting their own money into making sure it happens, which is, again, beautiful to see, is they couldn't figure out how they could figure out where the need was. So last Saturday on my daily walk, I'm on the phone with Rob and within an hour, we've got a partnership because, funnily enough, Frontline.Live knows exactly where the needs are. And the more that people tell us where the needs are, the easier it is for them to deliver the free PPE. So that's ingenious model. It's, it's like, it's, you know, I say it's, it's as um, scalable as the generosity of the British public. And the truth is we know that the British public want to support the front line because they're out every Friday night at 8 o'clock clapping and letting off fireworks. Yeah. So this gives them an opportunity to not only donate to make sure that the frontline workers get, um, get, their, uh, get the PPE they need, but to actually show that they're supporting it, which is why it's called caregiving. Um, so what can people do? Well, now we've uh, caregiving.co.uk they can buy this merchandise. They can literally bypass any of the procurement problems um, and donate as much, you know, buy as much or little as they can, so that we can then convert that into the most important currency, which is the PPE. Uh, and then, as far as we are concerned, anybody who knows anybody who's a frontline healthcare worker, get them to tweet in their need if they haven't got the PPE they need to keep safe. So just remind the three hashtags. So it's the hashtag of your postcode. Okay, so it's hashtag frontline map. Yeah. Uh, it's the, the, the website is called frontline.live, but the hashtag is frontline map. Super simple to remember. Um, work postcode so that we can check that it is actually a hospice or a hospital or whatever. And hashtag whatever PPE is you need. Uh, and that means that we'll be able to put your need on the map. And at the end of every day, We'll download the data, look at the organizations who have the biggest need and transfer that information over to Caregiven so that they can ship the PPE to them 
uh, as soon as they possibly can for free. Yeah, you talked about this being a reset. And yeah, there's, uh, you know, obviously there's there's so much bad stuff going on and there are so many families right now who are grieving. But once once you look beyond that to see the bigger picture, so you talked about this idea of, of reset and it does feel like, and I said to you just before we press record, there's 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 a kind of weird sort of irony right now of the fact that I'm doing this podcast, which is all about how people are busy and rushing around and <laughs> don't have time for stuff. And it's like, actually, a lot of people do suddenly have a lot more time on their hands or are spending a lot more, mostly quality time with their kids, in my case, <laughs> and, and various things like that. So um, yeah, what are your reflections on how it has changed you? this whole thing and um and what are your sort of uh, bigger reflections on how it can change all of us um i suppose just a small question <laughs> yeah no no a good question i suppose um my entire ethos uh and is that purpose is the most important thing to anyone whether they be at work whether they be at home Um, And my business, Beep, is driven by purpose. That purpose is to prove beyond reasonable doubt that businesses can be more successful if they look after their employees better. Mm. Um, And back to that point I made about reward and threat, there are a set of conditions in which human beings are as amazing as they can possibly be, as creative, as innovative, as collaborative. Those six pillars are respect. If people feel that you care about what they think or say, they're going to be much more, uh, they're just going to be much more productive and happy. Autonomy. It's like if you trust someone uh, and you really trust them to get on and do something and actually allow them that if things go wrong to tell you when they go wrong so that you can learn from those learnings, that makes sense. So connectedness, people need to feel connected to the people around them. Like in most organizations, you know, talking back to the NHS, people are told not to talk about the things that matter to them and not to really connect. That's terrible. Fairness, people like to know why decisions are made. Certainty, people like to see why decisions have been made and see the thinking behind it and be able to plan. You know, as I said before, if you throw change at somebody and they're not expecting it, Uh, they will react to that much worse than if they can see the data so they can see what's happening. If you can see what's happening, you can deal with that. And obviously empathy, which is something that I talk about a lot. If you understand how people feel, if you put yourselves in their footsteps, it basically means that you can treat them in a way which is going to get the best out of them. Um, I guess how it's affected me is this is an opportunity for me to be able to put all of that ethos into practice. Mm. And it's extraordinary watching what happens when people's, uh, when people come together around a shared, shared purpose. It's, uh, you know, we have some of the most incredible people working on this program. Um, and the generosity, you know, I'll give you another example. Um, I've got a friend who owns a, one of the biggest digital out-of-home companies, um, Ocean Outdoor. I've got another friend who runs a production company who does most of the really interesting experimental stuff, Voodoo. 
Um, so we're thinking, how do we get the work out, word out better with this? Um, so I go to Tim from Ocean Outdoor and Keith from Voodoo and say to them, look, we haven't got any money. This is all being done for love, but we're trying to save lives. What can you do to help us? And so they give us 13 of their biggest screens for free. Cool. All of the things I believe to be true about people, and I've struggled because people go, they're not. You know, you're just an absolute optimist. You know, you're too tigger. I am not too tigger, as it turns out. It turns out that people are fundamentally beautiful. And when they get behind a purpose, they, can ex- they achieve the most extraordinary things. And again, you know, this, this feeling of sort of, Collab, you know, collaborations without borders between people to, to achieve a bigger aim. How will it change the world after this? Well, I think um, Frontline Live is just one of many, many things that are going on across my network. It's proving that seeing live data from the front line is constructive. It's not negative. If people can see the data, they can rally around and find solutions. Um, the bigger that gets... You know, once the cat's out of the bag, it's difficult to get the cat back in the bag. If the cat gets a lot bigger, that ain't going back in the bag. So how do I think it will change? I think, you know, for me, the Bible according to Beep, which is the software that we're building, it's very much about all of these core principles. And I think people get it now. It's like, oh, so actually hearing from people on the front line is not that scary. No, it's not. Because every single person on the front line has got something to tell you that you should listen to. Because if you listen, you can make things better. Um, it also strikes me that those six pillars that you talked about, so respect, autonomy, connectedness, uh, certainty, empathy, and what was the one I missed? Fairness. Fairness. So those six pillars feel like things that... Like there's a relationship there between whether you're in the threat state or the reward state, right? So if you're in the threat state, it's really difficult to feel like things are fair. You have no certainty. It's quite hard to, uh, you know, to start connecting with those other things, right? So how do you, particularly through periods of change, get people to be connected to that purpose and those six pillars? Because, you know, if people feel threatened, it's it's more difficult, isn't it, for the, for them to... Uh, really feel comfortable. Oh, God, the research is insane. I mean, you know, when you look at the data, which I do often, um, and look at the relationship between productivity, efficiency, um, and um, the reward state, Mm. it's extraordinary. I mean, um, and I I don't have any stats with me, but in the threat state, which, by the way, most people are most of the time, because if you look at most organisational structures, inside public sector and private sector, they are diametrically opposed to those six pillars. You know, nobody listens to the front line. You're micromanaged to within an inch of your life. You're uh, actively dissuaded from connecting to people. You never really know why decisions are made. You've got no idea what's going to happen because they only tell you things right at the last minute. And people don't really care. They don't really ask how you're feeling when you come into a meeting. And then if you look at the stats again, <clears throat> people are in the threat state, uh, which most Here's a stat. 87% of the worldwide workforce is disengaged. Wow. 87% of the worldwide workforce is disengaged. That is insane. And it doesn't matter whether you're looking at that from a people perspective, 
because disengaged people are unpredictive. They're on a, they get ill more often, yada, yada. Um, mm. If people don't have a purpose, uh, well, basically behavioral science says without, you know, beyond, it's proved beyond reasonable doubt that purpose is the most important thing for human well-being. So then you think, yeah. God. And then you look at the, the purely commercial side of things and actually engaged people are, you know, nth degree is more effective, more productive. You know, companies that have engagement actually loads more productive, most pro- more profitable. It's all crazy. And then you look at what happens when people are in the threat state. Um, and again, this is all backed by serious research. It affects memory, affects decision-making, affects productivity. Their immune system suffers. So, so what you do as a leader within any organization is basically understand all of the principles from behavioral psychology and from organizational psychology and understand that you absolutely need to create the environment in which people can be at their best. I really want to see that data because um, we just, we, so my company, Think Productive, we just changed, um, well, we, we tweaked our mission, vision and values. And the, the value that we added to the existing ones was trust and kindness are our rocket fuel. And it, just hearing you talk, it's like, oh, I was just doing this out of um, kind of instinct and experience, right? But there's data that backs this up that actually if you create the right psychological safety, exactly. then yeah, like it's it's the rocket fuel for productivity for me is like trust comes from empathy and empathy comes from kindness and you know you can kind of almost track behaviors back to what the end result is going to be it's common sense this is what we talk about all the time it's common sense it's like you would never keep a family group together by treating people the way you treat employees Mm. it's like something happens inside large organizations and indeed some small organizations where we lose common sense and what, what do i mean by common sense and it's, it's a little phrase that we bandy around a lot. But what common means is something that's shared between two people or groups of people. Yeah. What sense means is a way by which we can respond to external stimulus quick. Yeah. Interesting. So common yeah. sense is more relevant now than it's ever been before. Uh-huh. And it's something, in fact, the way that most companies operate, the way that most large organizations operate are nonsensical. And so, yeah, I mean, as you say, you know, we know if you're nice to people, if you listen to them, if you let them know what's happening, if you communicate with them, you're going to get a better reaction out of those people, right? Yeah. How do we lose track of that? You know, and also then how do, like, it, it, all the data there backs it up. And I, I don't believe that 87% of the managers in those organizations are bad people or want their people to be disengaged. So, it, so it, that strikes me as it must be systemic, right? And there must be like the 13% of people have just found a way to, uh, to sort of rail against the system and, 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 and create that psychological safety. So, so yeah. do you have... And, my 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 sort of reading around uh and very limited experience of uh some of the sort of more non hierarchical changes to the business operating system and holacracy and all that kind of stuff is that it hasn't nothing's really caught fire in a way that you can see the success of it so do you have any thoughts on 
what people can do differently in terms of the structures and in terms of how they set up culture in their organizations to to be more biased towards those things rather than against them um yeah and i think you know you'd be surprised there are um there is some really hard data there's there was a brilliant report that was launched by mckinsey last year year i think it's called um i don't know the power of design or something but it, it was looking at over five years they looked at i think it was 300 different companies And they were looking at how the way that organizations operate have impact on the financial success of those companies. So I think they used, they had 300 companies and something like 20 million pieces of financial data over five years. And they proved beyond reasonable doubt that the companies that are most successful and most profitable, most efficient, all of those good things, operate around a different set of principles to the, the traditional um they operate we call it it's a bit embarrassing really but it seems to stick we call them the future ways of working uh, future wow we talk about it as but basically it's all based around the fact that um the senior leadership i mean look at microsoft look at satya what he's done over the last couple of years you know the leadership are empathetic they empower their workforces They allow and incentivize cross-disciplinary, um, cross-silo interaction. They make sure that every single person within their organization is constantly looking for little fixes because the truth is that everything can always be better. Yeah. Always. And again, because we've set up our organizations like machines, you know, with blueprints and silos and all of these things. And we make the assumption that for some reason within an organization, uh, it will operate like clockwork. You know, we can have these clearly identified little parts and departments and they'll all operate uh, separately. And you can take one of those parts out and put another part back in and it won't affect the system. Funnily enough, every organization is just a collection of people. And People are not rational, and therefore you can't treat them as if they are. And um, so the most successful companies, and this has been proven beyond re reasonable doubt now, operate in different ways. They operate in ways by which they, like I say, they empower their workforces to make mistakes. And, you know, the only real failure is the failure of not learning from mistakes, Because if you don't yeah. invite people to talk about them, they get pushed underground and you keep making them again and again. Yeah. So the, the research is there. I mean, you know, even over the last couple of years, um, it's been proven that companies that operate this future wow, like I say, are much more profitable. They're much more brand loyal. Employees like to stay with them. All of those good things. So the commercial argument is there in a way it's never been before. And people like Satya have proved it, which makes it a lot easier for people like me who are trying to help large organizations go through this transformation uh, because we have a really clear um, business argument. This is not fluffy people stuff. Yeah. If you want to be in the top 20, you change the way you operate. And the way you operate has to be about people. It has to operate the way that people work, which means it needs to harness 
these conditions. It needs to nurture these conditions of respect and autonomy and connectedness and fairness and certainty and empathy. You treat people in the way that we all know we need to be treated and you'll get the best out of them. Yeah, and you need those those big credible role models, right, to help uh, to help win that argument because otherwise, yeah, like you say, people do feel like, oh, this is just this is experimental or fluffy or whatever. Like they, they need to see that there's a commercial drive behind it too, right? Oh yeah. And you know, and again, you know, 3M, extraordinary company. They adopt these kind of things into it. There are, there are acres of companies that have started to see the commercial gain from changing the way that they operate to changing to a way which, you know, even 10 years ago would have felt a bit kind of woo woo, bit out there, bit Silicon Valley. It's, yeah it's proven and you know and the companies that don't move uh and it's interesting now again going back to covid um the companies that are doing best in the situation are the companies who already started to change their way of operating and therefore their employees are loyal it doesn't really matter whether they're working at home or not because they know the score they know what they're working they know what they're working on they know what they're working towards they feel respected and so they're working just as hard at home other companies not so much Mm, yeah i mean yeah you mentioned 3m there who are one of our clients and i think they were about the first people on the phone when all this started to happen saying hi guys what have you got how can you help us (laughs) you know so they're already you know really thinking ahead in terms of you know what does that mean for their people over the next few weeks and months for sure yes um, we've got a couple of minutes and I could honestly just talk to you all day. It just feels like there's a, <laughs> there's a lot of uh, really interesting crossover in terms of, um, not necessarily crossover, but there's a lot of uh, alignment with what you're doing and the stuff I do. And um, I, I just find it really fascinating. But um, I know you've got to go because it's a Saturday morning and you're doing uh, you're doing other podcasts and other work today, which I guess kind of shows shows everybody really... Uh, at the moment, uh, the fact that you're still uh, certainly busy through this whole COVID thing. Um, so, yeah, just before we finish off, it'd be great to just um, hear any other reflections you have around what does busy mean to you? And uh, uh, maybe just coming back to the core uh, theme of the podcast, really, um, what's what's most important to you in terms of how you define uh, things like productivity and happiness. How do you know when things are in the right kind of place for you? I think as you know, it's as simple as purpose and passion drive productivity. And actually, being busy at work when it doesn't feel like work because it's something you genuinely care about is it's the best thing in the world. That's the perfect note to end it on. So, um, if people want to uh find out more it's frontline.live right and we'll put the uh we'll put the links to how you can uh, you know the different hashtags that you need to use on twitter and a bit more information in our show notes at getbeyondbusy.com um is there any way that um like how do you want people to kind of interact with you connect with you how can people get hold of you uh, just give us a, a bit of that sort of contact detail before we finish cats okay my email is cats at we uh, my twitter handle is at catsy that's k-a-t-z-y and i'm cats keely on linkedin in fact it's difficult not to find me <laughs> although i saw on your linkedin you said uh, don't send me an email 
No, no, because I find myself getting loads of people contacting me without even bothering to say why. And I tend not to link with people unless I really want to link with them. Yeah. It's not, for me, it's not a numbers game. Yeah. It's like, if you really want to have a conversation, reach out to me, have a conversation, then I'll link in with you. But don't please yeah, this sure. with some horrible numbers game. It's, it's really annoying. <laughs> I saw a thing a little while ago that said, um, it's a secret game that's only played by middle-aged men, but the winner is the one who gets the most connections on LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not Just for me. That was really funny. <laughs> um, but thanks so much for being on Beyond Busy. Um, you're doing amazing stuff. And yeah, I'm just, just in awe of what you're doing right now and how quickly you've got that set up within a couple of weeks. It's um, just a huge achievement. So just want to say congrats on what you're doing. Uh, we're behind you. And thanks for being on Beyond Busy. Thank you so much for the invite. Talk to you soon. So thanks again to Katz for being on the show. Thanks also to Sophie Devonshire from the Caffeine Partnership for helping me to set that one up. Sophie Devonshire previously of Beyond Busy as well. So check out her episode. We'll put a link to that one in the show notes. Um, also to Mark Stedman, my producer on the show, and a uh, particular thanks, Mark, for turning this one around quickly. We just wanted to get it out as soon as we could, um, just given the nature of it and um, how urgent this whole thing is. So uh, just thanks for turning this around quickly. And likewise, thanks to Emily, who is my assistant. Doesn't often get a mention on this show, but really worth uh, saying that um, it really helps having these things um, a bit further on in advance. And um, that's not always been possible recently. So just thanks to Emily for uh, just turning around all the publicity and social media posting and all that sort of stuff so quickly on um, a lot of these episodes. It's so appreciated. Um, as always, we are sponsored by Think Productive. So go to thinkproductive.com if you're interested in productivity and helping your people uh, to be more productive either through this period or in general. And rest assured that we come at the whole productivity thing from very much a human and not superhero angle. It's, I think it's there's this whole thing going on at the moment where people are uh, unhelpfully getting obsessed with productivity and uh, learning violin or how are you going to use this lockdown period to become an infinitely better person and all that stuff and we start very much from the opposite end of that spectrum of like it's all about you as a person and we're going through a really tough time right now and if you're not uber productive during this period there's probably a very good reason for that and so uh, I think productivity can become almost like a dangerous word through something like this because it it creates these um, really unhelpful and false uh, targets and aspirations for people and um, if you want an antidote to that then our stuff will really help so thinkproductive.com and uh, thinkproductive.com forward slash wfh if you particularly want to hear about uh, how we can help with this whole working from home and lockdown kind of uh, period that we're in so uh, do check that out if you're interested and uh, also if you want to find out more about cats and link through to frontline.live and all the hashtags and all that other stuff that we talked about in the show um, if you just go to getbeyondbusy.com uh, then you'll be able to find uh, all the show notes for this episode as well as all the previous episodes and everything else podcast related and just a final reminder if you want to sign up for my mailing list it's graymalcott.com 
And then straight from that page, you'll see a little box that you can fill in. Um, also on my website is um, the contact page. So if you just want to drop me a message, uh, then you can just uh, do that from the contact page at the top there. Uh, send me an email, send me a message and let me know what you think of the show. Let me know what else you'd like to see from Beyond Busy, either um, generally or particularly themed around COVID and that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm just trying to put stuff out that's relevant and stuff that feels helpful. Um, and there's not like an infinite supply of that kind of thing, right? So if you have sort of questions or ideas, the chances are I probably haven't thought of it. So do drop me a line uh, at the contact form at graymalcott.com. And yeah, I'll do my best to just put out stuff that serves the community and helps and feels relevant and sparks thoughts and all that other stuff um, in the time where we are uh, perhaps a bit less busy than usual i was gonna say yeah like are we less, i'm le- i'm not less busy <laughs> i feel like i'm busy with other stuff i'm busy with a lot more childcare stuff than usual uh and all of that sort of thing but i don't find myself feeling like i've got loads of time on my hands um i'm sure some people do I, i'm sure if you're furloughed you might feel like that but i think there's a lot of people uh you know, volunteering or doing other stuff with that furlough time rather than just sitting around. But anyway, I'm rambling now. And so I'll uh, finish off. But yeah, if you've got ideas for for sort of future episodes, either just in general normal life or in COVID life, then uh, drop me a line at graymalcott.com. We'll be back next week because this was an off week. So we usually do uh, two weeks time, but this was the off week. So we will be back next week with another episode uh, so until then, getbeyondbusy.com if you want to find out, find out more. And uh, take care. Stay safe. Goes without saying, really. But yeah, stay safe. And uh, see you next week. Take care. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.